Okay, so on to the next chapter. So, onward and westward. All right, so Manifest Destiny in the 1840s. So, now, the idea of Manifest Destiny was that you would have millions of Americans in the, like, 1840s, 1850s that will believe that God chose America to continue to control the Western Hemisphere. Now, this idea goes further back into into Britain and, you know, England when they decided to continue west once they had, quote-unquote, discovered North and South America because they didn't realize that entire landmass was there. The coining of Manifest Destiny would not start until, like, the 1840s, though. <clears throat> Alright, so the main idea was land greed. I mean, really. And then the whole idealism that is going to lead to expansion. And this is going to be an explosive idea because you've got people forcing other groups out of their homes, not only Native Americans, but they're forcing Africans from their homes to come over, you know, to the United States in the form of slavery. Now, the the biggest expansion is going to start in the 1830s, and this is going to going to be a lot with Jackson and uh, Van Buren. And it's going to have to do with the removal of natives from the southeast and pushing them into Oklahoma. You know, this is the Trail of Tears. Now, the election of 1844 is going to be an expression of this whole idea of manifest destiny because. Texas becomes a leading issue for the campaign, so continuing westward. Uh, the expansionist Democrats, especially those in the South, are going to support James Polk. And he was very much part of that Jacksonian democracy. This group is going to seek to annex Texas and gain Oregon up that 5440 parallel. The Whigs, on the other hand, are going to nominate Henry Clay, and this is going to be his third run for the president. The Northern Whigs were opposed to the incorporation of Texas as a new slave state because that was that you know that will sway representation. It's not really or entirely about slavery itself. It's more about the representation that goes with it because the states in the North did not want to become slave states because. And this is not going to be for, like, moral or ethic reasons. This is going to be because they could end up losing jobs because of this free labor. Okay. The Liberty Party. This is going to be the first party that's created to promote the anti-extension of slavery. Now, their candidate, James Burney, and that's B-I-R-N-E-Y, is going to be the founder of the Kentucky Anti-Slavery Society, and the party is going to run both in the 1840 and 1844 elections. Polk is going to defeat Clay, 170 to 105, in the Electoral College. And the Liberty Party is actually strong enough to take away votes from Clay. That's part of the reason why he lost. Um, so he'll lose New York by about a five thousand, about five thousand votes, which means that Polk will end up winning the presidency. And if you know, if not for the Liberty Party, things could have went a very different way. Now, eventually, Texas joins the Union, obviously. So the Republic of Texas itself is going to last for about nine years. 
Mexico is going to refuse to recognize Texas's independence. And this is going to go all the way back to 1836. They also threatened war if Texas attempted to join the United States. And Texas feared that Mexico's larger and superior military forces would be able to overtake them. Texas is going to end up signing treaties with England, France, and the Netherlands in order to have protection in 1839 and 1840. Britain was interested in Texas as a buffer zone, same thing as France, because this would keep America from continuing to expand. They also used this area as a uh, challenge to the Monroe Doctrine. Right. 1845, President John Tyler, and this is going to be during what was called his lame duck period, he got a joint resolution through Congress for annexation. Now, because of the way he did it, it only required a majority vote. If he'd pushed for a treaty, it would have, it would have required a two-thirds vote in the Senate, and a lot of the Whigs were opposed to Texas entering into the Union, so more than likely would have lost. Tyler interpreted the Democratic Party's election victory as a mandate for annexation, and Texas was you know, already a part of the U.S. by the time Polk took the oath of office in March of 1845. Mexico was going to claim that the U.S. had unjustly taken Texas and then we refused to recognize its annexation. So, President Polk is uh, considered to be the most successful one-term president in U.S. history, and he was a strong proponent of Jacksonian ideals to the point where his supporters called him Young Hickory as opposed to Jackson, Jackson being Old Hickory. Polk was also a slave owner his entire life, and he actually owned plantations in both Tennessee and Mississippi. He had a four-point program that he achieved in less than four years, which in itself is remarkable because usually by the time a president, if a, a one-term president, when he gets into his second term, that is when he's actually starting to work on the things he started in his first term. All right, so the four-point program. You had the Walker Tariff. This was in 1846. Congress is going to lower the tariff from in 18 or from sorry of 1842 from 32% to 25%, which is you know a significant reduction. Uh, its passage is going to coincide with Britain's repeal of the Corn Laws, which were basically there were it was a tariff law that was made to help the the British. The, uh, the British farmers, because it put a tariff on, like, exports, or not exports, sorry, it put a tariff, tariff on imports, but really all it, it did is it made it too expensive for, like, your peasantry, or, you know, your kind of, your lower, your lower class, those people in poverty, it just made it too expensive for them to live, is really all it did. All right, the Second part of this is going to be the restoration of the independent treasury system. Again, this is going to be in 46. And the settlement of the organ dispute, 46. And the last part of the four-point program is going to be the acquisition of California in 1848. Alright, so Oregon, because this is one of those places we wanted. Now, the region had been disputed in certain sections by Spain, Russia, Britain, and by the U.S. John Jacob Astor is going to develop the American Fur Company, and he's going to turn it into a huge enterprise, organizing the fur trade from the Great Lakes all the way to Oregon. Now, when Astor died in 48, he was considered to be the richest man in America. Now, obviously, that would change once we got into the industrial era. Spain gave away its claims to Oregon in the Florida Purchase Treaty of 1819, and there's going to end up being a little bit of conflict with Russia. The Monroe Doctrine was in 
was <clears throat> intended by John Q. Adams partly to reject Russian claims to lands as far south as San Francisco, and Russia is going to end up retreating to the 5440 line due to the 1824-1825 treaty with the U.S. and Britain. Uh, the U.S. and Britain became the sole possessors of the territory. Now, American migration is going to flow into the Oregon region, which is south of the Columbia River, and it's going to be called the Oregon Trail. So in the 1840s, it will be a flood of pioneers that will come to, the, come to Oregon on a trail that will be blazed by Jebediah Smith. And that's J-E, or Jedediah, sorry, I don't know why I call him Jebediah. Anyway, it's J-E-D-E-D-I-A-H, and just regular old Smith. Uh, this is about a 2,000-mile trail, and it averaged about 17 deaths per mile. So it's very dangerous. So the trail started off in Independence, Missouri, or in the Council Bluffs of Iowa. This is the first beginnings of these trails. Now, by 1846, around 5,000 U.S. settlers will live south of the Columbia River. And Britain only had 700 people living north of the river. <coughs> So you can kind of see where it's already headed. Britain was concerned about a, a large U.S. migration into the region, and the disputed area existed between the Columbia River and the 49th parallel. Polk is going to abandon the Democrat Democratic pledge or campaign pledge of 5440 of the of a 5440 boundary. So some of the Democrats are going to advocate the 5440 or fight. <clears throat> He didn't want to tip the north-south political balance with a new additional northern state. And southerners, happy with the Texas annexation and the election, accepted the 49th parallel. Now, early in 1846, Britain is going to agree to the 49th parallel as the new Oregon border between the U.S. and Canada. Now, in 46, there is that Oregon Treaty. This is where the United States received the Oregon Territory south of the 49th parallel. War with Mexico is going to influence a lot of the senators to seek a quick end to the dispute. The northwestern states were actually angry that southerners got all of Texas, but the U.S. did not get all of Oregon. So, you know, there's a lot of butthurt sentiments going on here. So, the Mexican-American War of 46 to 48. Now, Polk wants to buy California from Mexico. Mexico was not interested because they were still peeved off about the Texas annexation. California was seen as a gateway to the Pacific. So, then you can literally go from sea to sea. Texas annexation caused Mexico to sever diplomatic relations with the United States. Now, there's going to be a boundary dispute. The original Texas boundary was the northerly new... Uh, Nueces River, as N-U-E-C-E-S. Texas claimed the Rio Grande to the south. Now, Polk is going to honor the Rio Grande as Texas's southern border. Mexico was less concerned of the boundary as it wanted all of Texas back. Polk is going to end up sending an envoy to Mexico City in late 45 to buy California for about $25 million. Mexico is going to, going to refuse. Again, they're upset about Texas. Because they felt because he felt slighted. Fork, fork, Polk, bless me, was now looking for a reason to go to war. Now, in January of 1846, Polk is going to order General Zachary Taylor, who will end up being president later, to march from the Nueces River to the Rio Grande, and he's going to order the Navy in the Gulf of Mexico and the California coast to be ready for war. In April, Mexican troops 
are going to cross the Rio Grande and will attack one of Taylor's suspended or surprised patrols, which will result in about 16 casualties. Polk is going to send his war message to Congress in response. So on May 13th, Congress will vote for a declaration of war. And this is going to be an overwhelmingly yes, because only 14 Whigs voted no. Uh, a lot of me, a lot of the uh, anti-slavery Whigs will join in, and they later condemned the conflict as Mr. Polk's war, even though they were like, "Yeah, let's do it," and then they're like, "Oh no, we shouldn't have did that." All right, the conscience Whigs. This is going to be a majority of Whigs that will oppose the war in principle. Some of the Whigs questioned if the war had begun on U.S. territory and if Polk had started the war under false pretenses. The spot resolutions, uh, Representative Abraham Lincoln sought to expose the exact spot where the war began. Many Whigs believed the U.S. had no legal right to the land south of the Nueces River. Ralph Waldo Emerson is going to fear slavery issue, issues, in, <clears throat> issues in the new conquered territory would lead to a severe sectional crisis. Basically, he said Mexico will poison us. Henry David Thoreau will actually go to jail rather than pay taxes to support the war. And a few, la- few years later, he's going to write his civil disobedience in 49. Southern expansionists were eager to take more Mexican territory, but Mexico hoped that U.S. involvement with Britain over Oregon would erupt into a war destructive to the U.S. Mexico wanted to humiliate the U.S. for the Texas issue. The U.S. ended up conquering California and occupied parts of Mexico, including Mexico City, in a war that lasted over a year and a half. So then we end up with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. That's going to be February 2nd of 1848. So the U.S. will gain California and the Mexican secession. This is going to be modern-day New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. And Mexico is going to lose one-half of its territory. The United States will agree to pay $15 million and assume the claims of the United States citizens against Mexico of $3.25 million for damages dating back to the Texas War of Independence. The treaty was approved by the U.S. Senate. 38 to 14, despite a bitter debate. The Mexican Whigs will disapprove of the war and even threaten to cut off supplies to the U.S. forces in Mexico. Expansionists in the South will clamor for all of Mexico, and John Calhoun will push for the treaty's ratification immediately before significant opposition can be mounted. Now, the results of the Mexican-American War. Most significantly, the slavery issue was ignited. So, basically, would slavery exist in the new territories? The Mexican War also contributed to the Civil War because of this. Abolitionists saw the Mexican War as a conspiracy of southern slave owners. The Wilmot Proviso of 1848. This never did pass through Congress. Now, the law proposed that slavery should neither exist in any of the territory sorry, never exist in any of the territory gained from Mexico. It twi- uh, <clears throat> Twice it passed the House, but it would not pass Senate, and it was endorsed by all but one free state. Southerners resented northern attempts to prevent the expansion of slavery, so that's more fuel to the fire for the Civil War. The U.S. territory increased by a third, and this is going to include Texas. The secession was bigger than the Louisiana territory. <clears throat> sorry bigger than the Louisiana Territory, purchased by Jefferson in 1803, which was massive. 13,000 Americans would die in the war, mostly due to disease, not actually from fighting. 
and the sentiment for the expansionism is going to increase in the United States. Latin America will begin to negatively view U.S. as the colossus of the North because we just kind of went in and did what we wanted to, and the U.S. forces became experienced in war, and this would affect the scope of the Civil War. Now, a couple of things for you to consider. How did the U.S. expansionism in the 1840s intensify sectionalism? And to what extent was President Polk successful in achieving his political goals during his presidency?